The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. This is a narrated Puritan, part of the Man of God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. Though this sermon was narrated just a few months back, it is so full of application I thought it would be a good addition to our podcast. The preacher is William Plumer, who is also known as commentator, for example, his commentary on the book of Psalms. I believe that you'll find this sermon unto edification, and with that we'll begin. From the National Preacher and Village Pulpit from February 1861, Sermon 4, the Reverend William S. Plumer, Professor of Didactic and Polemic Theology in the Western Theological Seminary in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Lesson from the Life and End of Judas Iscariot. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Matthew 26, verse 24. Such is the alarming and astounding language of the Lord Jesus Christ respecting one of his disciples and apostles. The Messiah needed not that any should testify to him of man, for he knew what was in man. He searches the hearts and reins. He declares the end from the beginning. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Christ's ministers are often deceived. But Christ, never. He knows all things. He never was overreached. His eyes are as a flaming fire. He easily detects the most specious pretenses. He knows all men, all hearts, all destinies. The person here spoken of is Judas, whose surname is Iscariot. Judas, Judah, Jehuda, and Jude are all the same word, varied only in unimportant particulars. The word Judas literally signifies the praise of the Lord. The name is common among the Israelites. One of Jacob's sons was called Judah. From him descended the tribe within whose territory was Jerusalem, and from which arose the name of Jews. After the ten tribes broke off, Judah designated the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, while the rest were called Israel. One of the Maccabees, very renowned in history, was called Judas. Another of them who bore the same name, suffered martyrdom under Antiochus Epiphanes. Besides these, there are several other persons of the same name more or less noticed in Jewish history before the coming of Christ. But of this man, the fearful sentences uttered by the Lord, it had been good for that man if he had not been born. What language of terror! Well might any ears tingle at the sound of it. What heart can conceive the awful and tremendous import of those words? Let us consider the life and end of them of whom they were spoken. But before entering into the particulars of his history, a few general remarks are pertinent. First, there is no evidence that Judas Iscariot was a man of bad countenance. Most men are much influenced by looks, and many think they can tell a man's character by his physiognomy. This may often be true, but there are exceptions. The case of Judas was probably one. 
in paintings intended to represent him, he is commonly distinguished by a sly, mean, cunning, malicious countenance. There is nothing in scripture to warrant artists in so painting him beyond the simple fact of his wickedness. For aught that appears to the contrary, he was a man of calm, free, open, placid, benignant countenance. Number two, there is no evidence that up to his betrayal of his Lord, his conduct was a subject of censor, complaint, jealousy, or of the slightest suspicion. Until the night when he committed the traitorous deed, his reputation seems to have been fair and without the shadow of a blemish. He was not ambitious as James and John on one occasion were. He was free from the characteristic rashness of Peter. His sins were all concealed from the eyes of mortals. He was a thief, but that was known only to omniscience. Number three. There is no evidence that during his continuance with Christ he regarded himself as a hypocrite. Doubtless he thought himself honest. He knew no other kind of sincerity than that which he possessed. He may have had solemn and joyful feelings under the preaching of Christ. He may have had very awful and tender thoughts when he himself was preaching. Such is man's self-ignorance that it is probable not one in ten thousand who are hypocrites firmly believe that such is their character. Nay, it commonly happens that the worse men are, the better they think themselves to be. Number four. Let it not be supposed that Judas ought not to have known his character. He shut his eyes to the truth respecting himself. He voluntarily rejected evidence that would have convinced him at the bar of his own conscience. Self-ignorance is a great sin. It is fostered by pride and unbelief and impenitence. The first mention made of this man is entirely creditable to him. He is introduced to us as one of the twelve whom Christ chose as disciples and confidential friends to be with him. And here is instructions, both public and private. We are not told that Christ ever availed himself of the absence of Judas to make any communications to the eleven until the night of his betrayal. Peter, James, and John were more with Christ than the others, but between Judas and the other eight, there does not appear to have been any marked difference in the treatment which they received at the hands of the Savior. Having for some time been a disciple, the Lord ordained him with the other eleven to the office and work of an apostle. Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4. Mark 3, verse 13. Luke 6, verse 12. Since the birth of Christ, this is the highest office to which any mortal could attain. The gifts requisite for the performance of his duties were extraordinary and miraculous. They belonged to no man now living. The proofs of an apostle were in signs and wonders and mighty deeds, Second Corinthians 12, verse 12. Every apostle must have seen the Lord, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. There were in early times, as there are still, vain pretenders to this office. But it is the duty and honor of the churches to expose their idle claims, Revelation 2, verse 2. But Judas was an apostle, and performed the duties of his office as did his fellows. He preached. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He cast out devils. When part of the apostolic commission required the shaking off of the dust from the feet as a testimony against those who would not receive them nor hear their words, it may be that Judas did this very thing, but there is no evidence that he was more denunciatory than others. After the return of the apostles from their first mission, and after they had given an account of their success, there is nothing said of Judas, 
until James and John, at the instigation and through the instrumentality of their mother, applied for the superiority over their brethren. On this occasion, it is said, the ten were moved with indignation against the two brethren, Matthew 20, verse 24. Luke says, when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. Chapter 10, verse 41. The record shows no difference between the behavior of Judas and that of the nine others. The all may have spoken of the wickedness of such ambition, and their remarks may have been very just. Judas may have been as temperate as the others. There is no evidence that he possessed a bitter or intolerant spirit beyond others, nor that he was often guilty of censoriousness. It is not at all improbable that Peter was more liable to reproof in this manner than Judas was. Soon after this, we find Christ warning his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, Luke 12, verse 1. Judas may have improved this hint so far as to attack these arch-deceivers and to preach some very searching, alarming sermons. But as a matter of personal application to his own heart and conscience, the warning seems to have been wholly neglected. Like many modern hypocrites, he probably gloried in his sincerity. Even bold transgressors who break all God's laws often boast of their truth, candor, and honesty. Not very long after this, Christ made a more pointed declaration which must have excited considerable attention. It was this, Have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? John 6, verse 70. We are not left to conjecture who was intended. For the evangelist adds, He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. John 6, verse 71. Sometime after, Jesus said, You are all clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. John 13, verses 10 and 11. What effect these sayings may have had, we are not informed. But they do not seem to have provoked any uncharitable remarks. Even Judas seems to have remembered that Christ had said, Judge not, that you be not judged, Matthew 7, verse 1. But we do not learn that these warnings of Christ caused Judas to search his own heart. It is certain that they had no permanent salutary effect, though it is almost inconceivable that they should have been wholly powerless. The next account we have of Judas respects his apparent regard for the poor. When the affectionate Mary anointed the feet of the blessed Jesus, Judas was there. Being treasurer of Christ's family and acting without auditors, he had dishonestly used some of the funds for his own private purposes. Hence, he is called a thief. It is nowhere hinted, however, that he esteemed himself a rogue. He may have thought that he ought to have more than any other as he had all the care of the fisc. He may also have deceived himself with idle plans of future restitution. There is no evidence that he fully condemned himself for a moment, though he may have had qualms and misgivings. When Mary anointed the Lord, Judas objected to such an expenditure, and on grounds quite plausible to some minds. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? John 12, verse 5. This reasoning seems to have struck others who were good men. Matthew says the disciples had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? And Mark says, There were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence and given to the poor. 
and they murmured against her. Mark 14, verses 4 and 5. How often are good men led astray by the specious pretenses of bad men? Judas didn't care for the poor, but he coveted that money. He did not see what good it could do to anoint the Lord with so very precious ointment. It was not necessary for purposes of health, and Mary might have honored Christ in some other way. Besides, by giving the price of that ointment to the Lord, who regarded the poor as his friends, and who always gave alms when he could, there would have been no waste. We have much Iscariot charity in our day. No doubt many said of Judas what a kind heart he has to the poor. He never forgets them. We have modern economists who love Christ no more than Judas, and who extol everything that looks like saving money in efforts that are merely to honor Christ. It is strange that the enemies of our Lord seem never to have thought of winning over any of his disciples. This is a strong proof of the entire absence of suspicion respecting their fidelity. Accordingly, they did not apply to any of the apostles to turn traitor, but one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said to them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him to you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him, Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. This is the account given by one evangelist. That of Luke is much like it. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude, Luke 22, 3-6. It is probable these enemies of Christ were much surprised when they saw and knew Judas, and still more when they learned his errand. This is a moment of exaltation to wicked men and apostate angels. They seemed to have thought that at last they would ease themselves of him, whose sermons and miracles had made such an impression. When Judas went to the chief priest, he was probably expected to obtain several thousand pieces of silver and thought thus to make his fortune. Possibly he intended to get his money, fulfill his bargain, and put his master into their hands, but expected Christ immediately to deliver himself out of their power. Thus a traitor would have become a swindler. Whatever were his thoughts, he made the offer to betray him. The chief priests loved money and understood bargaining. They probably saw in Judas an anxiety to hasten the matter. This would make them appear less careful in the business until at length he sold to them the Lord of life and glory for thirty pieces of silver. The bargain be it made, the difficulty with Judas now was to fulfill his part of it, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Wickedness is troublesome. Probably Judas gave frequent assurances of fidelity in his covenant with the Jews and would have pretended to be grossly insulted if any had charged him with a design of fraud. Sin fearfully blinds the mind and hardens the heart. The devil seems now to have had full possession of Judas. He took no time. He had no heart for reflection. He may have kept up some form of prayer, but there was no sincerity in him or his devotions. At the celebration of the Passover, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, 
that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for him that that man had never been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said to him, You have said. When it is said they were exceeding sorrowful, the reference is doubtless to the others beside Judas. It almost broke their hearts to think it possible that they should prove traitors. But although Judas last of all asked, Is it I? Yet there is no evidence that he had any right feelings but the contrary. As soon as Christ told him what he should do, Judas withdrew and sought his accomplices in wickedness. This exposure before the whole family of Christ seems to have stirred up the deepest malice, and Judas felt no longer any restraint from the decencies of the case. Judas being gone, Jesus said, Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that does betray me. And while he yet spoke, Lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. What a band was this, how bent on shedding innocent blood, how cold and impudent the malignity of the traitor, how enormous is his guilt. One would have expected that at this moment hell would have felt such mighty raven for her prey as to open wide her mouth and swallow him alive. But his cup is not yet full. Vile as he was, he would yet sin more and more. The deed was now done. The bargain was fulfilled on both sides. Judas had put his master into the hands of his murderers, and he had obtained his reward. Yes, he had in possession the goodly price, as it had once seemed to him. But presently the silver began to lose its luster and the money its value. The price of blood began to be a torment to its possessor. The inspired record is brief, but striking. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and that I betrayed innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple, and departed, and went and hanged himself. Matthew 27, 3-5 No mortal can endure the fell gnaw of the undying worm. Judas found it to be so. That silver filled his soul with horrors intolerable. Of late, he had greatly desired to get it, but now he throws it down in the temple and calls upon the priests, the ministers of religion, for some alleviation of his distress. But they paid him no regard. They would not even receive back the price of his treason. Not believing in the value and efficacy of that blood, which cleanses from all sin. Not beholding in Jesus the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. 
not finding any sympathy from his accomplices, conscience wielding over his guilty soul, the terrible sword of eternal and inflexible justice, and a hell burning within him. He hanged himself and shot the awful gulf of death and plunged into an undone eternity. He went to his own place. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. It is as true of those who kill themselves as of those who kill their neighbors that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The aggravations of the sin of betraying Christ were many and great. The traitor was imminent in place and gifts and office and profession, a guide to others, and one whose example was likely to influence many and if evil, to give great occasion to the enemy to speak reproachfully. His sin had for its object the Lord Jesus Christ. It was an attack on God himself. The sin admitted of no reparation, no restitution. It was against mercies, against convictions of conscience, against frequent and recent admonitions, against his ordination vows, against his own preaching, against the rules of friendship, against all the bonds of discipleship. It was committed deliberately, willfully, knowingly, presumptuously, impudently, maliciously. It was perpetrated just after the most solemn and tender interview on record, just after being engaged in the most solemn rites of religion. It was of a scarlet dye and of a crimson hue. Taking his own life was but adding iniquity to iniquity. He may have justified himself in his suicide and thought that he had a right to do as he pleased with his earthly existence. Perhaps he had thought also that hell itself could not be more intolerable than his present anguish. Miserable man, why will you place the seal of immutability on your own perdition? making your doom irreversible and putting your soul beyond the reach of even the mercy of God. Oh, what a fiend is man without the grace of God. No natural amiability, no faithful instructions, no power of working miracles, no solemn sacraments, no tears and warnings can save any man from the vilest sins and the hottest hell. God's free, sovereign, eternal love can alone save any soul. This subject is full of instruction and teaches many salutary lessons. Let us not so far separate ourselves from Judas as to suppose that we are naturally better than he is, or that if left to ourselves we will not prove that we are ready for any deed of wickedness. He was a monster of depravity, but all sin is horrible, and God would have us learn wisdom from the fall of the worst men in the world. Thus we may profit by the overthrow of the most infamous. The lessons taught us by the life and end of Judas are such as these. The wicked men do not so intend, yet in all cases they shall certainly glorify God by all their misdeeds. Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain, Psalm 76.10. The wickedness of Judas was by God overruled to bring about the most important event in man's salvation. Let the wicked never forget that their unbelief and penitence, profaneness, and persecution of the godly, all their sins of heart and life and tongue shall in spite of themselves glorify God, though it be at the fearful loss of their own souls. The wicked now hate God, but they cannot defeat him. If they will not be vessels to honor, they shall be vessels to dishonor. If they refuse to be useful in a cheerful service, they shall be useful in their own destruction, Ezekiel 15, verses 1 to 8. Nor shall God's unfailing purpose 
to bring out of evil a bait ought of the guilt to those who work iniquity. Judas is treason was all foretold, and of course it was predetermined. Yet his accountability for his wickedness was unimpaired, for he acted freely in all that he did. Men may clamorously assert, but they never can prove, that the divine purpose so interferes with moral agency as to impair human obligation to do what is right. It is full of wonder that thinking and studious men do not see that the whole system of prophecy is a direct and full confutation of all objections on this ground against the doctrine of predestination. The predicted events cannot possibly fail of accomplishment. They must therefore either be absolutely decreed by the all-wise God, or there must be some necessity which cannot be overcome even by the deity himself. The first is Christian predestination, the latter is heathen fatalism, but neither interferes with man's free agency and accountableness, for he still acts voluntarily according to the prevailing inclinations of his heart. Judas acted with perfect freedom. He could not have had more liberty. Therefore his guilt remained. That which was true of the betrayer was also true of the murderers of our Lord. Acts 2 verses 23 and Acts 4 verses 27 and 28. From the history of Judas we also learn that when a man is once fairly started in a career of wickedness, it is impossible to tell where he will stop. God's grace may arrest one in a maddest career as it did Saul of Tarsus. But left to himself, man will dig his way into hell. The good providence of God mercifully restrains even the wicked. Hell's existence on earth would not be desirable. Scenes of violence and blood, deeds of outrage and atrocity, words of hatred and blasphemy, and looks of fierceness and terror would appall us every hour, but that God lays his almighty hand upon the hearts of men and commands them to be still. Unrestrained, every heart would show its possessor a monster of wickedness. Passions which now lie smothered would, if let loose, rage and sweep everything before them. Natural affection the voice of conscience. Public opinion, regard to reputation and fear of the law are happily employed by providence to hold men back. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As a river of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Proverbs 21.1 Even in this life, many a poor sinner has been affrighted at the length which he has gone in crime and debasement and has cried out in sore amazement, And have I come to this? In the next world, surprise awaits all the impenitent, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travel upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 3 All men should especially beware of covetousness. The love of money is a root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierce himself through with many sorrows. Of the truth of this teaching, Judas was a fearful witness. No tongue, no pen can describe the sorrows which rolled over his soul. When men are eagerly heaping up riches, they are doing work for bitter repentance in this world, or in that which is to come. Even on earth, a covetous man heaps up riches not to enjoy them, but to have them and starves himself in the midst of plenty, and most unnaturally cheats and robs himself of that which is his own. 
and makes a hard shift to be as poor and miserable with a great estate as any man can be without it. Nor can he divine who shall be the gainer of all of his toils. He heaps up riches and knows not who shall gather them. Psalm 39.6 God especially set himself to punish covetousness. It is idolatry. It is as true of this sin as of drunkenness, that in the end it bites like the serpent and stings like the adder. Did men but know how bitter would be the end of transgression, they would at least pause before they plunge into all evil. Seneca said, Malice drinks half of its own poison. The same is true of all evil passions. The madness of men in rebelling against God is beyond a parallel in human history. They delight in iniquity. They roll it as a sweet morsel under their tongues. They risk all for it, and they lose all by it. Their hearts are fully set in them to do evil. Oh, that men would hear the warnings of Richard Baxter. Use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer, and a murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you, and though it kill your bodies, it shall not be able to kill your souls. And though it brings you to the grave as it did your head, it shall not be able to keep you there. James says, Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Yet no man without the grace of God sees the evil of sin till it is too late. Folly is bound up in the soul of man till God drives it away by the beams of the Son of Righteousness. In Judas's pretended regard for the poor, we see what foul wickedness may be covered with the most plausible pretenses. The same thing is seen in every age. By false names, every virtue is depressed and every vice exalted. Pascal says, One of the greatest artifices the devil uses to engage men in vice and debauchery is to fasten the names of contempt on certain virtues, and thus to fill weak souls with a foolish fear of passing for scrupulous should they desire to put them in practice. The man who beggars widows and orphans and holds back the wages of the harling and lives by the distresses he brings on others, would fain persuade himself and his neighbors that he is prudent. Indeed, any pretext will satisfy a blind, stupid conscience. The great concern of the masses is to justify themselves before men. They little regard the tribunal of God. Yet the investigations of the last day will tear off all false pretenses and sweep away every refuge of lies. Nor should we forget that character may as well be learned from small as from great things. Judas's petty larceny was as good as an index to his character as his treason. A straw will show which way the wind blows. Human character is not made up of a few great acts, but of a multitude of little things. Everyday conduct shows a man. Great events in which we are actors will fearfully expose us. If in small affairs we are unable to behave well, he that contemns small things shall fall by little and little. The failure of our virtue on great occasions is but an announcement to the world that we have been habitually coming short in our more private behavior. Little rills form the greatest rivers. The ocean itself is made up of drops of rain or particles of mist. A man is what his habits make him. He who cannot resist a slight temptation will never gain a mastery over a grievous one. 
If you are run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you deal in the swelling of Jordan? Jeremiah 12 verse 5. It is also manifest a bad man may for a long time appear well. To do so may cause them trouble, but may still be practicable. Through life they may have such a fear of exposure and be so studious of appearances as to deceive all around them. Even suspicion may not soil their fair name, and yet they may be in the gall of bitterness. As to in the vices of the debauched, they may practice the sins of devils. It is true that this class of transgressors have a hard task. They are always like one who has rent his garment, which he finds difficult to conceal. Truth is one and simple. Falsehood is multiform and complex. An honest blunderer is to be preferred before the most cunning knave on earth. A life of deception is full of hardship and uncertainty, and at its close, when amendment is impossible, the truth comes out, and in a moment damnation flashes in the face, and the poor soul enters on an existence full of misery. When God tears away the mask, disguise is no longer possible. And yet bad men might know the truth concerning themselves if they did not hate it. Judas well knew his own theft, yet he refused to consider it a sin to be repented of. He had before his mind a clear evidence of his own hypocrisy, but he was not disposed to give it its just weight. He hated the light, and did not come to the light lest his deed should be reproved. When will men learn that concealment is not innocence? We may hide our sins from our own eyes, but until God casts them all behind his back, they may rise up at any moment and overwhelm us. If men were not as unwise as they are, wicked, they would not go to the bar of God with a lie in their right hand. How small a temptation to sin will at last prevail over a vicious mind. For less than twenty dollars, Judas sold his lord and master. Those temptations commonly esteemed great are not the most sure to prevail. The ribaldry of the Philistines did not move Samson from his fidelity, but the blandishments of Delilah overcame him. Esau sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. Many a man consents to lose a friend for his wit, yea, to lose his soul for a quibble. Men may sin until the mere force of habit without any apparent inducement seems sufficient to impel them to great enormities. Nothing prepares a man for destruction faster than hypocrisy or formality in actions of a religious nature. The three years which Judah spent in the family of our Lord probably exceeded all the rest of his life in ripening him for destruction. So many, so solemn, so impressive truths were presented to his mind that he must have become very rapidly hardened. I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Proverbs 7 verse 14 said one who is now ready for the worst of deeds. The reason why other things being equal apostates are so much more wicked than others is that they have learned how to resist all good influences. They have tried to remedy, but first learned to render it ineffectual. It is a small manner to be judged a man's judgment. The judgment of God it shall stand. It is righteous. 
it is always according to truth. Man judges of the heart by appearances. God judges of appearances by the heart, and he judges of the heart by itself. The tribunal from which there lies no appeal will reverse a vast number of decisions made by the tribunals of earth. Public opinion often errs. Individual judgments are so often erroneous. If men condemn and God approves, all is well. But if men acquit and God condemns, all is lost. He that judges us is the Lord. The history of Judas shows us how man will cling to false hopes. Hypocrites hold fast their delusive expectations with the utmost tenacity. There is no evidence that during years of hypocrisy Judas ever seriously doubted his own piety. There were many sure marks indeed against him, but what cares any hypocrite for evidence? His own blind confidence is to him more powerful than all the truths of God's word, because he is determined because he is determined to believe his state good, nothing will convince him to the contrary. If men thus self-confident forsake their profession and openly apostatize, we don't need to be surprised. It is impossible but that offenses will come. There must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19 Open defections from truth and righteousness are no strange things. It has been so from the beginning. Jesus had his Judas. Peter must deal with Ananias and Sapphira and Simon Magus. Paul was in perils among false brethren, and Demas quite forsook him. We must expect those that are not of us to go out from us. If they were of us, they would no doubt continue with us. The wicked will do wickedly, though for a while they may seem to be righteous. The case of Judas gives us a rule of admission to church membership, and so far as moral character is concerned to church offices. We may require a credible profession of piety. Infallible evidence of love to Christ is not attainable. A profession of piety accompanied by such evidence as his, a consistent life affords is as much as we may demand. Our Savior knew Judas from the beginning to be a bad man, a devil, but his omniscience, not the overt acts of Judas, taught him thus, and so he received him into the church, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Our Lord judged the members of his church not by what as God knew of their hearts, but by their credible profession. The master never did evil that good might come. He practiced on the true rule. Let us seek no other. However painful our fears respecting the real characters of men, we must respect a profession of piety, not contradicted by the life. How difficult is it to bring home truths to the deceitful heart of man? Hypocrites are slow to improve, close discriminating preaching. They desire not to look into the real characters. And finally, the case of Judas discloses the uselessness of that sorrow of the world which works death. It has no hope in it and drives the soul to madness. It is not desperation but penitence that God requires. Regrets without hatred of sin are useless both on earth and in hell. They avail nothing in time, nothing in eternity. 
When it is said Judas repented, the word translated repentance is not the word used by inspired writers to express godly sorrow or saving repentance. There is much sorrow that does not but prepare men for other and more dreadful deeds. In the case of Judas, we have also a fearful example of the terrible judgment of God against the wicked. As he loved cursing, so it came to him. As he delighted not in blessing, so it was far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as with a garment, so it came into his bowels like water and like oil into the bones. God's judgments are still abroad in the earth. Of all judgments, those which are spiritual should most alarm us. Eternal misery is as dreadful as eternal glory is desirable. Oh, how fearful must be the doom of the incorrigibly wicked, when in their case existence itself ceases to be desirable or even tolerable. It is true of everyone who dies without repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that it had been good for that man if he had not been born, not been born.